Hey, good morning, faith family. If you got a Bible, would you turn to Revelation chapter 1? Revelation chapter 1. Everybody okay if we do one more week in Revelation? Well, we're going to do anyway, so uh, uh, go ahead and turn to Revelation 1. While you're turning there, let me give you just a couple of quick announcements. Um, first of all, some have been asking about... Um, um, uh, hurricane relief, and if there's uh, anything they can do here in terms of Berean to uh, help support that. We as a faith family are going to, uh, to give a contribution through our benevolent fund to support the relief efforts uh, there uh, in Texas and that area. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, all you have to do, this is the simplest way to do it, is you can just give to our benevolence fund and from that is where we're going to make that gift. That's the simplest way uh, for us to do that. So we're going to do something as a faith family regardless. And if you want to participate in that, we'd encourage you to do that. And you can just do that uh, in that way. Uh, secondly, uh, this morning will be our last series in the book of Revelation. Next week, we're going to start a series for the fall we're calling Set Free. And we're going to look through the book of Galatians, verse by verse, and look at what it means to truly be free in Jesus. That if the Son has set you free, what? You are free indeed. And boy, there are, there are so many people that need to experience the freedom of the gospel, the freedom that Jesus gives. And so that's what we're going to focus our fall on as we work through that book. Uh, but this morning we finish up, I promise, the book of Revelation. Uh, and there's just been something on my heart. You ever just had something that you just had to say? And um, last week when we finished the seventh church, this was still lingering for me. And um, my goal this morning is to fill you with hope. I want you, as you walk out of this service today, to have an extra jump in your step because of the glorious truth that is yours in Jesus. So let me share that with you this morning over the next four hours. Revelation chapter 1. <laughs> I wish. Revelation chapter 1, I'm just going to read one verse, uh, which will be a key theme for us, but I will still invite you to stand if you're able uh, for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. Verse 8. Now, normally I stick with one passage. This morning we're going to jump around a lot, um, and, and you'll see why. But this is kind of the theme. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this truth and help us now see what it means. Um, may this morning be a very practical um, time for us to be filled with hope, to to really get a sense of all that is ours in Christ. And I know there are people here today and they're discouraged. It's hard not to be uh, with a lot of the things that are going on. Uh, so give us a focused attention on the truth we find in your word. All to the glory of Jesus. He's the one that we worship today. And we ask this in his name. God's people said, amen, amen. Please be seated. If you had a time machine, would you visit your past or your future? 
I want you to think about that. If you had a time machine, which would you do? Would you go back to your past or would you visit something in your future? Uh, that was one of the questions that was asked uh, in a research study that was published recently by the American Psychological Association. In the study, what they did is they interviewed personally 2,000 people face-to-face And the goal of the study was to try to get an idea as to how much people wanted to know about their future. And so uh, how would you have answered that question? I want you to participate. So show of hands, if you had a time machine, how many of you would go back to something in the past? Show of hands. Oh, wow, quite a few of you. How many of you would go to some point in the future? Uh, Maybe 50-50, all right, roughly around that. Well, if you said that you would go back to the past, you are in the overwhelming majority. In fact, what the, this was so fascinating to me. The, the study showed that nearly 90% of people, 90% of people didn't want to know information related to their future, whether it was negative or positive. So, for instance, when they were asked, would you want to know the day that you would die? said no. Would you want to know that the day that your spouse would die? Again, about 90% said no. Would you want to know if your marriage would last? 87% said no. They don't want to know. And then this one was really uh, interesting to me. Would you want to know if there is life after death? Now, you would think that'd be something that people would want to know. And yet around 70% said no, they didn't even want to know if there was life after death. Now, in an attempt to try to explain what this research uh, uncovered, uh, they asked Frank Farley, who's a professor at Temple University, the former uh, president of the American Psychological Association, here was the explanation that he gave. He said this, here's why he thought most people, 90%, didn't want to know about the future. Quote, while you might think you'd want to look into the future and so that you could deal with it, I think the stress of knowing is too high. Close quote. Now, why is that? Here's why I think that's the case. In fact, I've said this to you before and I'll continue to say this to you. What you know about your future impacts the way you live in the present. Uh, And that's the reason why people don't want to know, because if they knew the answer to those questions, it would have implications for how they would live now. And you know this is true. For instance, if you knew that tomorrow you were going to be uh, receiving a large financial inheritance, I guarantee you it would impact the way you thought about your financial situation today. If you knew for certain, without question, that your team was going to win, right? Just play along, all right? Um, You would not get nervous at halftime if they're losing. You know that. If you knew that today was going to be your last day on earth, if you knew that, I guarantee you it would change how you live. Do you see what I'm saying? You, you already know that what you believe, what you know about your future impacts the way you live in the present, which is why, listen, faith family, the Bible tells us not to avoid knowing about our future, but to intentionally set our minds on it. 
Because what you believe about your future impacts the way you live now. Think, for instance, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your minds, that's a command, that's an indicative. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The Bible says, don't avoid looking at your future. Don't avoid thinking about your future. No, set your mind on it. Because what you believe about your future impacts the way you live in the present. Now, what in the world does this have to do with the book of Revelation? You ready? It's why every single one of the seven letters we looked at, every one of them without exception, ends with a future promise. It ends by trying to get that church to set its mind on the future. And that's what I want us to do today. I'm going to do three things in the next four hours. One is uh, I want to describe the Christian future. Number two, I want to tell you how we know it's true. And number three, why it matters now. What is our future in Jesus? How do we know it's true? And why does it matter now? The first is, what are the promises given in these letters about our future? And and of the seven letters, I want to give you four promises. I would encourage you to write these down. Now, you may be thinking this is his Tennessee math showing. Uh, If there's seven letters... Why four promises? Well, because they overlap. In fact, some of the promises are very similar, which you'll see. And so I've kind of summarized them or combined them into these four. Number one, first promise is complete restoration. Complete restoration. And I'll show this to you in the text. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. This is out of the first letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant, now watch this language, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Y'all talk to me this morning. What kind of language is that? What's that referring to? Tree of life, paradise of God. Eden or Genesis. That's exactly right. That's Genesis language. It's taking you back to life before there was uh, the curse of sin. Do, Do you see? Some of you, this may not be new, but there's a lot of you, you're new to being a Christian. You're new to the Bible. You're new to church. I want you to think about all of history, the entire story of God in four chapters. Chapter number one is creation. Creation is God creates everything and it's good. There's fellowship with Him. There's fellowship with humanity that is right and good and not broken. There's fellowship with creation. It is life without the curse of sin. It's life the way it is meant to be, being with God. Chapter 2 is the fall. Sin, Genesis 3, enters in. It disrupts this beautiful rhythm of creation. Pleasure mixed with pain. Relationships filled with strife. Um, work is frustrated now. Life ends in death. Chapter 3, God enters in in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and he comes into the brokenness and shows you that he has the power to restore. Do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus goes around and the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised? 
Is that Jesus's version of a magic trick? Is he like, man, this is going to be so awesome. Watch this. Come here, Lazarus. Right? Is that what he's doing? No. What Je- this is so important. What Jesus is showing you is he has the power to restore life back to the way it's supposed to be. Blindness, uh, uh, death, uh, being lame, that's life in a fallen, broken world. And Jesus is showing that he has the power to restore Chapter 4, which is what we are waiting on, is restoration. This is, as we see in Romans 8, we are groaning now inwardly. Anybody been groaning this week as you watch the images on TV and those that are dealing with the destruction? Groan inwardly, awaiting the restoration of all things. We are along with creation saying, come Lord Jesus. Anybody? Like, Jesus, come on and make it all right. Restore everything the way it's supposed to be. Now, the imagery that you see in Revelation, look at Revelation 3 and verse 12. Revelation 3 and verse 12. And watch the language used here. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. What in the world is the new Jerusalem? It is the restoration of all things, right? Uh, Look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. This is great news. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, what? New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's Genesis language, right? Adam and Eve were dwelling in God's presence. That has been restored. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Oh, man, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Hallelujah. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian, look at me this morning. That is your future. When all that is wrong will be made right in Jesus. I've told you about Peter Cropper, the, uh, the f- famous uh, world-renowned violinist, given the opportunity to play at this prestigious festival and, and able to play a 258-year-old Stradivarius. Unbelievably valuable. You remember what happened? He's walking out on stage. He trips over an extension cord and falls, completely shatters that violin. He goes back to London, discouraged, depressed. A man by the name of Charles Bear contacts him and says, I want to restore that violin. He says, there's no way it can be restored. And for the next two months, Charles Bear devotes all of his attention on restoring that violin. Two months after, he presents the violin back to Peter, and Peter is astounded. He's amazed because he can't even notice a single crack. And even better, it sounded more beautiful than it had before. 
Listen, faith family, your life in many ways is like a clay pot, isn't it? In fact, the Bible even talks about the fact that we are earthly vessels. And maybe it's just because I'm a pastor, but it feels like a lot of the conversations that I have with people are people who feel a lot like that. Broken. A broken marriage. A broken future. A broken promise. A man came up to me after the last service and he said, this is my life right now. Broken. And I want you to know, Christian, that if you know Jesus Christ, He is going to take all of your broken pieces and completely restore your life. Amen? Anybody fired up about your future? Whatever. Yeah, man, go ahead. That's awesome. Whatever, whatever brokenness you are experiencing in this life, Jesus is going to make all things new. That's just promise number one. Look at the second promise. It's not just complete restoration. Promise two is no condemnation. Let me show you where I get this in the text. Um, Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Let me let Revelation define what the second death is. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. As for the cowardly, faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the, say it, second death. In other words, the second death in the book of Revelation is eternal or final judgment, which makes sense because we, we know the language of being born again or a new birth or a second birth, which is what? eternal life with God. So second death is eternal separation or condemnation or judgment in God. Listen, here is the reality. Everybody, if you've zoned out, zone back in. Every single one of us is going to stand before God. And on that day, you will either stand alone or you will stand in Christ alone. Those are the only options. And for those that are standing in Christ alone, listen to what Jesus promises in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Watch. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Christian, do you know what you're going to have on that day? Man, this is great news. You're going to have an advocate. You're going to have a representative that's going to plead your case in the courtroom of God. And do you know what that representative will say? Here is exhibit A, my righteousness applied to them. 
And because of that, there will be no condemnation for you in that day. You have, when you stand before the great judge, nothing to fear. Why? Because Jesus has already served our judgment on the cross. And because he has served our judgment, there will be no condemnation on judgment day. As the great hymn says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Isn't that awesome? Like, man, when we stand before God, we're not going to have anything to fear because Jesus has already said it's finished. Number one, complete restoration. Number two, no condemnation. You fired up about your future? Well, here's promise number three, eternal celebration. Eternal celebration. Look at chapter two and verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and on that's a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem like uh, any kind of celebration unless you know what those symbols mean. Uh, manna was symbolic of God feeding his people. You think, for instance, in the uh, Old Testament, God is feeding his people with manna. Uh, you've got the Passover where they are celebrating uh, unleavened bread. They're celebrating God's rescue from Egypt. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus takes those elements, what we know as the Lord's Supper, and he breaks the bread with the disciples and says this. This is really important. We will not eat of this again until the what? Anybody know? Until the kingdom. In other words, what this bread, what this wine is representative of is a feast, a celebration that we're going to experience together when our Father feeds us in the kingdom, which is why I'm not trying to pick on the way we do the Lord's Supper. I'm all for being uh, um, uh, uh, contemplating things and being introspective and thinking about the cross and the tomb. But listen, don't forget that the Lord's Supper is pointing you to something else, which is a festival, a feast, a celebration. And what fires me up is your pastors, we're going to be there together. Like, I love, like, we're going to be together for all of eternity in a party like you've never experienced because there ain't no party like a Jesus party because a Jesus party literally won't stop. It will go on and on and on and it'll get better and better and better. And it makes every party you've ever been to in this life look like a third grade birthday party. Have you ever thought about why the very first miracle Jesus did was uh, uh, the, the, the miracle at a wedding? Do you remember what he did? This will get you in trouble in a Baptist church. He turned the water into wine. And it wasn't just like terrible wine. It was the best wine to the point that the people at the party are saying, why do you bring this out at the end? Aren't you supposed to serve that at the beginning? You serve the best at the beginning because at the end, nobody knows any different. But you're bringing out the best wine. Why is that? He is showing you something about the kingdom. That in his hand are pleasures forevermore. And we've been given a white stone with a new name, meaning we have been given entrance into that celebration. And we are going to clang our glasses and eat our meal in the presence of our king. And a billion years into it, it'll be better than day one. That's your 
future. You fired up about your future? You better be. Goodness. It's complete restoration. It's no condemnation. It's an eternal celebration. And lastly, promise number four is that it is a sovereign dominion. Let me show you these in two of the letters. First is chapter 2, verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26. The one who conquers, uh, who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Man, we don't think about this enough, I think, as Christians. Let me be as clear as I can possibly be. Humanity was created to reign. Think about that. In the beginning, when God creates Adam and Eve, he creates them in his image. And what does he say? Give them dominion over the birds of the air, over the fish of the sea. In other words, part of, what it, part of what it means to be in the image of God is to rule and reign your life in such a way that you image the glory of God. That you use, oh, this is a whole sermon, you use whatever God has entrusted to you in such a way that you demonstrate who God is. Do you realize you're going to do that in all of eternity? You are going to reign with Christ. That you will rule and reign over the created order when all is made new. Listen to how Paul argues this in terms of the now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, the Corinthians are not able to settle disputes in the church. So here's Paul's argument. This is fascinating. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? What's his point? Like you, be, you being a steward of all that you have right now is just preparing you for your future. Your inability to oversee a checkbook. Your inability to oversee a, a business, your inability to oversee uh, relationships, these things are what you were created to do, and you will rule and you will reign with Jesus forever. So practice now to the glory of God. So that when people see how you run your business, they see how you manage your money, they see how you manage your relationships, they say, man, I see God in that. I see the glory of God in that. Listen, I don't care what anybody in this world has said about you. Oh, you just drive a truck. Oh, you just work at Walmart. Oh, man, you just flip burgers. Oh, man, you're an outcast. Man, you're unpopular in high school. Oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom. Why is that even significant? And all the things that the world may say, but I'll tell you who I'm looking at. I'm looking at kings and queens of a future kingdom. Yeah, you. A king and a queen in a future kingdom. And I'll tell you this much. The single mom that's doing everything she can to raise her kids right is far more prepared for that than the CEO with a successful business that has made it all about himself. That's the kingdom. That's your future. You fired up about your future?
only thing left is a kick in the pants if you're not fired up about it, all right? Because that's some awesome truth, man. I would trade 30 years of whatever comes in this life to have the eternity of that. And that's my heart today. That, that's why this, these letters end the way that they do. Whatever your struggle is, man, know your future. Don't, don't look away from it. Set your mind on it. Now, the question would then be, um, how do we know that's true? Because, as I'm sure you've experienced before, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. I can sit up here all day long and promise you everything you want, but if I don't have the authority to do it or make it happen, then the promise is no good, do you see? So we have to ask, Jesus is making these promises, so what gives him the authority to give them? And that's where Revelation 1 verse 8 comes into play. Look back at it. Revelation 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and the what? Omega. That, that's just the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. How do we know? He said, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the end. I only have time to make this connection. Are you ready? Here it is. The reason why you can be assured of your end is because he is the end. In other words... He's the only one with the authority to determine your end because he's the end. He's the beginning and the end, which means nobody, nobody, nobody has the authority to say what your end will be except the omega because he is the end. Um, Bill Clem, very famous um, umpire in Major League Baseball, um, was inducted to the Hall of Fame. There's a story told of him about a very critical game that was being played, ninth inning, uh, down by a run. Uh, it's always that situation, isn't it, right? Winning run is on third base. Guy steps up to the plate. Hits the ball into the left field. Guy from third starts running home. Ball's thrown in. Catcher grabs it. And there's one of those collisions, you know, that you've seen in baseball where the catcher is laid out, the, uh, the runner is laid out, and there's just that moment where you're waiting for the call. Out from the dugout runs one of the coaches screaming, he's safe, he's safe, he's safe. Then out from the other dugout comes the other coach saying, no, 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 he's out, he's out, he's out. And Bill Clem looks at both of those coaches and says this, he ain't nothing until I call it. Why? Because the only one that had the authority to make that call was him. Listen, the only one that has the authority to determine your future is the Omega. I don't care what you think about your future. It doesn't even matter what I say about your future. What matters is what the Omega says about your future because your future is nothing until he says it so. This is the Christian future. 
How do we know it's true? Because the one who promises it is the end. He is the omega. So why does that matter now? What are the implications for Monday morning? Here it is. Number one is we have hope in tribulation. We have hope in tribulation. The book of Revelation, these letters were written, I've said this several times, were written to real people facing real suffering. I have, man, I've gotten fired up. And you've heard me do this. Um, you're like, you're always fired up. Um, when people, I think part of the reason why people have been uh, struck by this Revelation series is they're like, man, this actually is practical. You know, it's like, what frustrates me is people have made the book of Revelation all about, we've got to figure out prophecy, and we've got our charts, and let's have a conference. And It's real people who are really suffering. The church in Smyrna are facing verbal persecution, financial poverty, and physical prison. The church in Philadelphia have been locked out of the temple being persecuted by the Jews. John has been isolated to the island of Patmos. Why? Because he's on vacation? No, because he refuses to worship the emperor. For heaven's sake, when this book was written, Christians were tied to two horses and then told to run in opposite directions, splitting them in two. They were lit on fire and thrown to lions. Jesus isn't saying all this so you can spiritually daydream or fill a prophecy conference. He's writing it to guarantee your hope. Nothing, nothing will take your Christian hope away in this life because that's your future. That's your future. And so when we, when we study the book of Revelation, we need to come away encouraged as the original readers were to keep pressing on. And whatever's broke in your life, it's not going to be broke forever because your life is going to be restored. Man, I got this uh, email this week. It just, it blew me away. It blew me away. Quote, Mr. Feltner, my name is, I won't mention it, I'm 23 years old from Australia. I've been fighting years of pain and loss to the point that I have no hope. Now what? Get this. I searched the Apple store and found your podcast on Ruth. It's like way over a year ago. Thank you. <laughs> and she says, how from Naomi, remember Naomi, came the birth of King David and ultimately Jesus. That simple truth has given me light. Thank you. Blessings from Austin. <laughs> what? <laughs> Australia? But do you remember Naomi? You want to talk about broken Ruth chapter 1? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. God has dealt bitterly with me. It's famine. 
I've lost my husband. My family's been destroyed. I'm not even living in, with my own people. God is against me. My life is shattered. Daughter-in-laws, go home. Why would you want to hook your wagon to something that's going over the cliff? And then chapter 4 comes along. And that same woman that was broken into pieces has said of her because she has just experienced a redeemer. He is the restorer of life. Ain't no flood going to take your hope away. Ain't no divorce going to take your hope away. Ain't no death going to take your hope away. Because what you believe about your future has implications for what you see in the present. Number two, not just the hope we have in tribulation, but the strength uh, we have in temptation. Where do I get this? Strength and temptation. These letters were written to encourage obedience and discourage disobedience, right? Are y'all you, you still with me? So like almost every letter is like, here's what you're doing well, keep doing it. And here's what I have against you, repent of that. These letters are talking about faithfulness, repenting of sin, and then they end with that future promise, which means there's a connection between what you believe about your future and your faithfulness to Jesus now. Think of sin this way. Sin is giving in to momentary pleasures rather than trusting in eternal promises. That'll preach. You see, there is strength when I'm in the battle of temptation knowing, listen, sin is not who I am anymore. Who I am in my omega has implications for the decisions I make right now. And when we understand that we're not of this world... We don't want to live according to the world. It's a great place for an amen. When we understand that we are not of this world, we no longer want to live according to the world. What you believe about your future impacts the way you live in the present. Number three, unity as a congregation. Unity as a congregation. These letters were written to actual churches real churches that needed to hold fast together the truth of the gospel. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and following. The end of all things is at hand. All right, what do we do? Get our water bottles, flashlights, and weapons. We'll be ready for the end. No, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers above all. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Man, this is a whole sermon. I need you to hear this. Listen, listen. Do you know how you get prepared for your future? You start experiencing it now together. You don't get ready for the future by saying, all right, flashlights and, and water bottles. You get ready for your future by loving one another. 
by serving one another. So that people might actually walk into this faith family and said, man, it smells like heaven in here. Like this is a glimpse of something out of this world in the most complimentary way. You guys don't act like the world. I know because we're going somewhere that's not of this world. I don't know if you know this, but we're kind of going to be around each other for a long time. Just a little while. Some of you are scooting over, right? Like, and so you want to know how you get ready for your future? You start seeing a glimpse of heaven here now. Because a church that's convinced of its future starts living differently in the present. Here's the last one. It's urgency of the mission. Urgency of the mission. The book of Revelation is not finished. What I mean by that is it's not all fulfilled. Jesus hasn't come yet. The final judgment has not arrived yet, which means since the book of Revelation is not finished, faith family, neither is the mission. Neither is the mission. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says this as simply as I know to say it. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so I say two things to you. Number one, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you? Because He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Let's get real. Do you know Jesus? And secondly, do you know people in your life that don't know Jesus? They don't have a relationship with Jesus. Well, listen, they may or may not go to heaven, but the least you could do is invite them the least you could do is invite them. Not to promises, but to a person. For you as the Son has life. William Gladstone, he was the British Prime Minister in the latter part of the 19th century, was also a Christian. Uh, He tells a story of a young man that came up to him once. He admired Gladstone and he came up to him and he wanted some advice about his life. And uh, Gladstone records the conversation as follows. This is so good. Well, what do you want to do when you graduate? I want to attend law school as you did. Well, that's a great idea. Then what? I want to practice law and defend the poor. That is honorable. Then what? Well, I intend to stand before Parliament and serve the people. That's fantastic. And then what? Who knows? Maybe I'll become Prime Minister just like you. And then what? I'm going to retire with honor. Sounds great. Then what? Die, I guess. (laughs) Then what? And the young man looked at him and said, well, I've never given that much thought. 
To which Gladstone replied, quote, Then young man, my advice for you, for your life, is go home, grab a Bible, and give thought to your eternity. Faith family, this life, it's a gift of God, but it's only a vapor. It is only a vapor. And I don't have a time machine to take you into the future, but I do have a Bible. And it tells me that if Jesus is your Omega, this life may be a long, hard road, but it's headed towards a good, good end. Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. It's grace that's brought us safe thus far. And grace is going to lead us home. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Pray with me. Yes and amen. What great truth. Father, thank you for your word. I'm, I'm glad that this morning isn't based on my authority. I'm so glad that the words that I have said, the truth that we have proclaimed, it's not because I say so, it's because the Omega says so. The beginning and the end has spoken, he has promised, and it is true. And I pray right now, there's, there's likely people in this room right now, they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. They've never come to that point and said, listen, I'm a sinner. I need salvation, and there is only one, only one Redeemer, and his name is Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he rose again, and I receive that by faith, surrendering my life to him today. Lord, I I pray that if there is somebody here today that has never come to that point, that today would be that day, that the celebration and the restoration would begin in their heart. For others in this room, they are believers, but they've become discouraged with all kinds of things, all kinds of brokenness in life. Oh, that today we would set our mind on the things above that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Speak to us. Work in us. Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.